Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAP support review podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Andrew Powell. Just a reminder, these episodes are usually not meant for anything to diagnose things on anybody's eyes in today's episode. Things are a little different. Today, we've brought in a special guest to talk about a topic, of course, outside ophthalmology to most extent, just in case with things being as crazy as they are, you, your, the hapless eye specialist might be found getting pulled onto the floor, or worse yet, the unit. So thinking about that grim future, I thought, well, panicked, first of all, and then I thought, what could I do? Who could I talk to? And I thought about the guy who helped me survive my three months in the ICU as a preliminary medicine intern. And I'd like to give a warm welcome and an introduction to Yuri Matasov, who is currently one of the pulmonary and critical care medicine fellows at Cedars Sinai Medical Center and will be next year's chief, I think. Is that right, Yuri? That's right. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much again for pulling my fat out of the fryer again, <laughs> um, even before it lands Mine too. there so far. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Yuri wears many hats and uh, has many different uh gigs going on. So one of the hardest workers I've ever known. And yeah, Ben, sorry, that's even in your presence. I have to say that. I respect and, uh, it. <laughs> I just, I think he's got the confidence of a lot of our mentors from back in our earlier training programs to the point where they are bringing him back to uh, work together as colleagues. So from one person I really trust with taking care of patients who I can't. So um, yeah, welcome, Yuri. And uh, I guess... Thank you so much again for, you know, arranging these things. We were just talking off air that this sort of uh, module that you have for us today is something that you'd been kind of uh, preparing and going over. And I guess a lot of people have been asking you for tips these days. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. You know, um, as our volume in dealing with COVID patients and especially very, very sick COVID patients has grown, um, a lot of other disciplines have been pulled into, you know, to the ICU and also to the general hospital wards. Um, and so, you know, as pulmonary and critical care fellows, we've had to kind of give reintroductions, if you will, to a lot of people who may not have may not experienced as commonly um, a lot of the, a lot of the issues that we'll be talking about today. So I know that uh, you were thinking of starting with some stuff about general epidemiology, as far as we know how COVID-19 is affecting us across the country. Yeah, so a lot of our experience has been reflected in other people's experiences as well. So most, the vast majority of people who develop COVID-19 are people who develop fairly mild disease. Um, these are people who develop, you know, flu-like symptoms, fever, cough. Some of them will have mild shortness of breath, but the, various, the vast majority of these people are actually pretty healthy. The people who get hospitalized tend to be people who require some degree of supplemental oxygen. So these are people who get put on nasal cannula. And then, you know, some of these, the majority of those people will get ultimately discharged from the hospital without further issues. And the small number of those will end up getting um, admitted to critical care. And a smaller number of those will end up being put on a ventilator. I've heard that, uh, you know, we know that the mortality rates aren't anything amazingly awful, but compared to the flu, it certainly is, is bad. And given how infectious this is, just even low percentages will amount to a high number of absolute mortality. And I've also heard that, you know, yeah, most people are going to do fine, but that small minority, get things get bad a lot faster than you would ever expect, right? That's right. So if you read the, the studies that have been published from China, from Italy, from Seattle, their mortality varies from somewhere from around 2% to around 6%. 
There's a lot of issues with comparing those because it depends on the population screening, so it changes the denominator, so it changes what mortality there is. And there's a number of other reasons for why the mortality rates differ as well, including patient populations, including resources available, etc. But we do know that people tend to do more poorly um, if they're older, if they're men, if they're obese, or if they have some antecedent comorbidity, a significant heart failure, pulmonary disease, um, renal failure, those people tend to do more poorly. Yeah. I wonder if that's really something that's reflected or just the always general case that the more unhealthy and sick you are, the worse you'll do in any situation. Absolutely. But I also want to emphasize that I, you know, I personally and a lot of my colleagues have taken care of people who are completely otherwise healthy. So um, while, you know, being chronically ill does increase your risk, it's not, um, it's not exclusive to the, the elderly and the infirm. Gotcha. With that as a kind of introduction of most of us ophthalmologists are sort of in the stone age where we're not even used to using PPE that much in our regular exams. Any tips in general about how we should comport ourselves and try to protect ourselves and each other? Yeah, so there's a number of uh, kind of basic principles to remember, one of which is that everything you were taught in medical school for patient assessment and patient management doesn't necessarily apply here. So students take note. <laughs> um, so, you know, conventionally, we've been taught that you have to take a history, do a physical exam, you know, collect objective data and then formulate an assessment and plan. In this disease, I don't think that a lot of those principles are necessary or safe. Specifically, you should not need to go into the room unless it's absolutely necessary. A lot of rooms are now, especially in newer hospitals, have windows that you can see a lot of things through. Um, and there's very few times when a physical exam will actually change the course of treatment for this patient. Mm. By the same principle, um, the only people who should be going into the room are people who are truly necessary. So, you know, if you uh, try to batch whatever labs that you need into one time so that only one person has to go in and collect them once a day, if you feel like an x-ray is going to change your management, then absolutely get an x-ray. But um, recognize that routine procedures, routine labs um, are not appropriate in these people. If we were on things like the floor, is there much of a point to get like chest x-rays, routine labs? It sounds really like you can really tell who's going to circle the drain by their respiratory status and even just eyeing that through a window, I guess. Is that right? Yeah. So the degree of oxygen requirement and the speed at which someone is progressing in terms of oxygen requirement is probably the most important, um, kind of the most important thing that you have to guide your treatment. Um, so, and you will see that, I mean, a lot of these people who end up ultimately on a ventilator, they'll go from being on two liters nasal cannula to being on a non rebreather within hours. Um, and you'll see that reflected in their oxygen saturation. And you'll see that often reflected in sort of their clinical status just by looking at them. So a lot of those things, you know, labs and x-rays won't necessarily uh, be as helpful for you as much as your just, you know, assessment of the patient visually and how much oxygen they're requiring. Yeah, I remember my seniors and in that intern year telling us like the only thing you need to learn in intern year is just how to eyeball a patient and tell if they're sick or like really not doing well. Right, exactly. Uh, when you're, if you do have to go into the room and whoever does have to go into the room, almost all hospitals have at this point developed pretty strict procedures for which equipment they need to, people need to wear. Um, hopefully it's available depending on where you are, obviously. Um, and what the proper procedure is for entering and exiting the room. Generally speaking, for most patients under most circumstances, um, you have to have a gown, an N95 mask, um, gloves, and uh, something covering your eyes, goggles, an eye shield, something. 
If you are doing procedures that involve aerosolization, so these are things like intubations, bronchoscopies, or you're somehow in the room for when these things are happening, or CPR, um, then the people who are in the room should be all wearing pappers. Jeez, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we'll talk in a little bit about kind of like what, when that becomes pretty relevant. What is really important to remember good practices for taking on, for putting on and taking off your PPE. Make sure to, as much as you can, decontaminate yourself while you're still in the room and don't bring that outside into the hallway. And again, most hospitals at this point have developed procedures. You know, a lot of this is a little bit architectural depending on how the rooms are designed. But most hospitals have developed procedures, so it's very important to familiarize yourself with how um, to actually put on and take off PPE in a matter that's safe for you and everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, obviously, very important to wash your hands. Um, I can't overstate this. Um, you know, this is probably the single biggest thing that's going to cause you to spread disease if you don't do it well. And I guess the final point on all of this that I'll make is um, that the scrubs that you're wearing, you know, there's been a lot of questions about people bringing this home to their loved ones. So if you can change out of your scrubs into something else at work, then that's fine. Um, or change out of it immediately as you get home, like on your doorstep or outside of your doorstep. You know, try to avoid bringing whatever you're wearing in the hospital uh, into your house. Yeah, and I think um, even in the eye clinic, a lot of us and even our attendings are doing that already. But we know that we're not in like a super high acuity setting like the unit. But at the same time, these things I hear about like cumulative viral titer or viral load makes me wonder, I just leave it in a pile at the door just in case. Right. Yeah, I've been thinking about doing that just for the grocery store, you know? I mean, who knows? (laughs) Right. Right. You want to make sure your cat Watson stays as safe as possible, Ben. I do. I do. Cats can get COVID, from what I know. He's not He's not quite as big as that tiger. It was a tiger, right? Whatever. Anyway, um, so appreciate that, uh, you know, safety caution, Yuri. I guess the big, uh, talking of animals, the big elephant in the room for all of us is, dear Lord, what if we do end up on the unit and have to be asked to, like, manage a vent again or something? Um, yeah, so let's start with sort of basic principles. So, you know, who should be admitted to the hospital? I will preface all of what I'm going to, uh, what I'm about to say with, you know, some caveats. What almost everything that I'm about to say is what's been supported by the critical care guidelines um, and by best practices, you know, from our institution and as well as sort of my own personal experience in dealing with these with these patients. Please recognize that a lot of this professional society guidelines are based on judgment um, rather than actual data. Um, and so that is a limiting factor as well. But yeah, with all that said, against you, you all have yeah. like, like two months to collect data. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, so let's talk about who should be in the hospital to begin with. So just having coronavirus does not put you in the hospital. Okay. Uh, most people who just get test positive for COVID should be at home, even if they're symptomatic. If you get admitted, um, it's because usually because you need supplemental oxygen. Um, or you have some other condition that merits your hospitalization. So the safest place for for COVID patients, assuming they don't need acute care, is at home. Now, if someone gets admitted, um, the general flow of supplemental oxygen is to put people on nasal cannula first, followed by high-flow nasal cannula, followed by intubation. Um, you'll notice that BiPAP is largely left out of that algorithm, and the reason for that is an aerosolization concern. The advantage of high-flow nasal cannula is that high-flow nasal cannula is um, titratable both by flow of oxygen and also by fraction of inspired oxygen, or FiO2. Um, And your ability to titrate that um, gives you a much more granular picture of how much someone's oxygen requirements are increasing 
and at what point they may need to be intubated. Can you give me a refresher on uh, FIO2? Because I remember kind of like a conversion factor between nasal cannula and like, what is it, three? Every every one unit up bump in nasal cannula is like a 3% rise in FIO2? Wait, I've 21, I forget. We started yeah. 21%, right? <laughs> yeah, so room air is 21% oxygen. Um, yeah. You know, um, I don't really know how accurate the conversions are, but if you just remember the simple principle that you know, nasal cannula is effective up to about five or six liters per minute. Yeah. Uh, past that, the patient should really be started on high-flow nasal cannula. Um, and, you know, depending on how and how much respiratory distress the patient is, um, you know, will determine sort of how much high-flow nasal cannula they're put on. Um, yeah. Generally, maybe 10 liters, you know, maybe 80%, 90%. Uh, FiO2 is probably a reasonable place to start. Uh, but again, this is, you know, a little bit hospital dependent, a little bit practice dependent as well. There's probably no right answer for that. Um, but certainly if you're getting up to the point that someone is on 40 liters, um, 90% or 100% FiO2, that person should probably be in the intensive care unit and it probably needs to be intubated. Yeah, and I think that's the scary part here, just realizing that there's not really much, uh, there's not a lot of separation between nas high-flow nasal cannula and then intubation. Like that right. requires a really good sense of judgment on the floor uh, yeah. physicians management, like about when to make that decision to get the unit involved, right? Absolutely. And a lot of that is going to be very dependent on the resources available in the hospital. Um, you know, yeah. the situation here is very different than what it is in New York City right now. Um, yeah. So our current practice here is to be kind of like as conservative as we can. So whoever, you know, we have the space right now in the unit, if we are at all concerned about someone's respiratory status, we'll just transfer them to the unit. And if it looks like they're mm -hmm. doing well, 12 hours later, great, we'll just transfer them back out. But in most cases where we're concerned enough to transfer them to the unit, they're probably going to end up getting intubated. Okay. I mean, it's an easy call if the guy's like in agonal breathing, obviously, or something and looks terrible. But do you have other metrics that you kind of use as like hints that might not be obvious on physical exam? Yeah, I tend to, we tend to use oxygen saturation, um, tend to use yeah. oxygen saturation of around 92% is the time to start supplemental oxygen. So if some, if you're working in the oh. ER and someone comes in and they're sitting around 92%, put them on supplemental oxygen. Um, okay. Your goal for oxygen saturation should probably be around 95%. And so however much oxygen that requires. It's interesting in that a lot of the patients with COVID that I've seen, um, they actually don't look as badly um, as you would expect them to based on their oxygen saturation, based on their radiographic appearance. A lot of them mm. actually are very calm. Some of them are speaking in full sentences. They're texting on their phone and it can lead you into this false sense of security, um, which is why it's actually very important to follow the oxygen saturation, keep their oxygen saturations. Um, probably in the mid nineties, it's probably a reasonable target. So a little like a COPD or something where they're like satting in the eighties and they look like they're doing fine. Uh, sort of, with the, with the exception that these patients don't tend to retain CO2 that much, uh, much like CO, you know, like COPD patients would. Um, these people, you know, it's really just purely hypoxia-driven respiratory failure, um, but their oxygen levels just are dropping over time, and the amount of time over which that drop occurs is usually hours. I guess another way of asking what I'm asking is, can you trust the saturation, oxygen saturation, or have there been case like? Is there a significant amount of the time where the SATs are doing fine, like still in the 95 range, and they're still definitely decompensating? You know, and um, I think the oxygen SAT is probably a reasonable target as long as you have a decent waveform, probably right. fine. If you're concerned, you can always get an arterial blood gas and verify. And if it looks like your arterial blood gas oxygen saturation is correlating to your pulse oximeter, then you're probably okay. 
Okay, so we can trust the sats at least. For the most part, yeah. Are you getting much sleep with all of this careful uh, monitoring on your shifts? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, a lot of it comes down to good communication with the nurses as well. Um, and yeah. so, and setting sort of expectations for reasons to call you. Uh, because obviously, especially if your volume is large enough, then you're not going to be with these people's bedside all the time, uh, whereas the nurse yeah. will. And so if you set the expectation with the nurse ahead of time that, you know, if the oxygen sats look like they're falling, if you look like you're going up on oxygen at, you know, whatever flow rate, then to call you earlier rather than later, then that's probably the best way of doing it. These people, when they come to the intensive care unit, it's probably a better idea to intubate them earlier rather than later. There's a number of reasons for that, but one of them is a practical one. So in order to safely intubate these people, you have to do a very well-coordinated anesthesia, you know, pulmonary effort to try to minimize aerosolization, minimize um, consequences of intubation. Um, you know, you guys probably will not be in a situation where you're actually intubating people, so I'm not going to go into the details of, you know, how, sort of how to prepare for intubation. But in general, um, if someone has gone from nasal cannula to almost maxed out on high flow, so again, 30, 40 liters, 80 to 90% FiO2, and that amount of time, you know, that period of time has been, you know, three or four hours, then the chances that this person probably needs to be intubated. You really don't want to intubate these people when they're when they have refractory hypoxemia on high flow nasal cannula, because it takes time. You know, to intubate these people, you have to put on, you know, you have to put on pappers. You have to make sure that all the medications are ready, that you have a plan, uh, including a backup plan for how to intubate these people. And so, it's always, in my opinion, it's probably better to do this earlier rather than later. Um, you don't really don't want to crash intubate these people. Cool. Well, uh, I've been trying to delay this for as long as possible, but I guess there's no choice. Uh, you want to lead us through some vent settings and vent management tips? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so a lot of, um, a lot of, if you, you know, think back to the last time you heard this, a lot of ventilator management is standard management of ARDS, um, or acute respiratory distress syndrome. Okay. Um, so if you, you know, think back to the glory days of maybe your intern year, you'll recall the principle of low tidal volume, lung protective ventilation, um, and I think those principles still hold true. I will say that there's some opinion coming out that there, this may not be the best approach, but I think most of us are still using you know, standard ARDS management practices and taking care of these people. Hmm. So what I mean by that is use things, first of all, use ventilator modes that you're familiar with. Okay, So most people are familiar with assist control, volume control, uh, where, which is where you set the rate, um, the volume that the patient gets, uh, the FiO2, and the PEEP, and this is the positive end expiratory pressure. Your goal of tidal volume that you set should be about 4 to 8 uh, milliliters per kilogram of ideal body weight. Ideal body weight is determined by height exclusively. It's not determined by weight. So um, a lot of these people you need accurate heights on them. The PEEP should be set on the higher end, uh, probably around 8 to 10 or so. So if you remember, conventional um, PEEP is about 5. Um, I usually set these people around 8 and see how they do. When you put someone on assist control, volume control, your one of the parameters that you monitor is plateau pressure. The number that you're looking for in plateau pressure is 30 or less centimeters of water. Um, this is standard ARDSnet guidelines uh, for managing all ARDS. So those basic ventilator stuff. I guess if I'm thinking about the extremes of either side, you know, if I'm really the one turning these knobs and trying not to bust out to too high or too low, mm -hmm. if there's too high volume, then 
potentially you suffer barrow drauma to all the uh, alveoli and stuff, right? But if yes. the peep is too low, I guess then you risk all the alveoli just collapsing and not ever springing back out again. Yeah, so it's like a basic principle. Um, you know, higher peep strategy promotes recruitment of alveoli um, and minimizes the the strain that is on each individual alveolus between the time that, you know, between the pressure that it experiences when it expands and the pressure that it experiences when it collapses. So what you're trying to do is minimize that diff- that pressure difference to allow for alveolar recruitment and to allow for improved oxygenation. If you set your tidal volumes too high, you will experience, um, you may induce volume trauma. And, you know, this is what came out of the ArtsNet trials, you know, a decade ago. If the reason to watch your plateau pressures is to avoid barotrauma. So it's a little bit of a balancing act. You know, set your tidal volumes to be, you know, on the lower end. Um, you can set your respiratory rate to be a little bit higher to compensate for that. Um, as, you me- as you remember, ventilation is determined by respiratory rate and tidal volume. And then your oxygenation is determined by PEEP and FiO2. Um, so almost all these people are going to be on 100% FiO2 to begin with. Um, start them on a higher end of PEEP, 8 or so, 10 or so. Um, keep in mind that a lot of these things that you do are can have hemodynamic consequences. So if the PEEP is too high, if the airway pressures are too high, then you may run into issues with hypotension. Those That's kind of the basic idea behind, you know, without going into an extensive discussion of mechanical ventilation, that's probably a reasonable place to start. Appreciate that so much, Yuri. Ben, have you been keeping up like I've been pretending to? <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. No, yeah, I mean, this is all um, it, like honestly, it's a great review. It's like really kind of dusting off the old the old books in the noggin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was going to talk about certain you know things that we use now that someone's intubated. You know, if you've set their basic ventilator parameters, um, where do you go from here? Okay, so prone positioning. Um, you'll remember that this has came this has come out for ARDS years ago, um, and we use it for you know ARDS with a P to F ratio. That's a PAO2 to FiO2 ratio of less than about 150 or so. Um, we'll put people, flip them over, and t- put them on their bellies instead of on their backs. This is called prone positioning. Um, the idea behind prone positioning is to improve ventilation perfusion matching. The reason this is effective is because the majority of people who develop um, respiratory failure from you know, hypoxic respiratory failure that have parenchymal lung disease, um, kind of like these people, they tend to have posterior predominant disease. When they have posterior predominant disease and blood flow is posterior predominant as well, you essentially are shunting, you know, blood through poorly ventilated, poorly oxygenated areas. So by prone positioning, what you're doing is, you know, the parenchymal disease is still posterior predominant, so still toward their back, but your blood flow is now more toward your chest. And so you basically improve perfusion of areas of your lung that are better oxygenated and better, better ventilated. We have seen that patients with COVID respond incredibly well to this. I mean, even better than I've seen in influenza, in you know, pneumonia patients, um, in ARDS for other reasons. It's really extraordinary how well patients respond to this. And so um, I think it's an excellent idea. Um, I think it is an idea that any intensive care should be any intensive care unit should be familiar with the criteria that we use. This is general criteria. This is a little bit flexible, but the criteria that we generally use is um, if someone has been intubated for under 36 hours with again a PaO2 to FiO2 ratio of less than or equal to 150 uh, P to F ratio, and that is on a PEEP of at least five and an FiO2 of at least 60% or 0.6, depending on where you are. That is a time that you should be thinking about proning your patient. 
I would like to emphasize that just because you can oxygenate your patient well, supine, um, does not mean that they're not a candidate for proning. So it's not a maneuver for just refractory hypoxemia. It's really something that should be done up front if you're, capable, if you're at a place that's capable of doing that. The, there are some issues with that. You know, proning is a great technique to improve oxygenation, but it's not benign, right? So when you flip someone over, if you think about it practically, a lot of these people have a lot of lines. Um, a lot of them have ET tubes that can become dislodged. When you put people on their belly, you know, then you have to support different areas of pressure. Um, so pressure ulcers develop in different areas. You have to protect the face. Um, and so a lot of this is very meticulous nursing care. And it's really driven by meticulous nursing care in all of this. Um, I, can't, I can't emphasize that enough. When I say, um, when I say that you need to watch out for lines, um, I also want to emphasize the fact that almost everybody you intubate should probably have a central line. It should probably have an arterial line. And there's two reasons for that. One is that it's secure access. And two is that you minimize the amount of blood draws that you're getting from people. So you minimize the amount of time that other people spend in the room when they need to get any kind of sample, they need to hook up a drip, anything like that. Do you worry about infection in those cases when you have, uh, it sounds almost like superfluous um, lines, like a, a central line <laughs> for patients? You're talking to a guy in the unit, Ben. Lines are like air. <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, you know, so, saying. you know, we, we really haven't, as long as you have, you know, again, good nursing practice, um, we really haven't seen that many line infections, not, not any more that we would normally see. Um, Got it. Yeah. And again, you know, the worst scenario is when um, you have a patient that's, who's on a ventilator, who is now completely awake, desynchronous with the ventilator, desatting, and you have no IV access and you have no way to sedate them and you have no way to make them synchronous. Mm. Um, and as long as you have a patient who's fighting the vent, you're never going to be able to fix their hypoxemia. And I've seen people, you know, code from this many times. And so I think, in my opinion, the risk of, you know, having a central line is far outweighed by the potential benefits from it. And the risk of not having a central line is actually pretty great in my eyes. And is this for patients you're proning or is this for like all patients you're intubating? I would say this is for all patients who are intubated. Got it. Um, in general, proning um, is done for about 12 to 16 hours, um, and then the patient can be supine for about four to eight hours. That's kind of a reflection of how the initial trials were done with it. That's not necessarily a hard and fast rule. Uh, the main purpose of supining someone is really for nursing care. And so, you know, if you say someone is proned and their oxygenation is great and you supine them and all of a sudden their oxygenation is terrible and they're about to code, it doesn't mean they need to leave them supine for 48 hour, you know, four to eight hours. You can put them prone again. Um, immediately as soon as whatever gets done gets done for some reason i just remember like at our internship we had the uh, fancy beds that would flip around when we were proning people but just listening to your talk like i imagine yeah most people don't have that i guess most people are just being flipped over on their beds right <laughs> yeah so um the vast majority of places in the world do manual proning without any kind of proning bed um mm. at C cedars is a huge hospital with a huge icu we never use proning beds. Um, and I think if we're getting into a scenario where, you know, we're pulling all resources to take care of these people, you're probably not going to have enough proning beds. Yeah, um, so I think nurses need to become very comfortable with proning people manually. And if you're at a plate, if you're at a center that doesn't do this frequently, uh, you will get pushback initially from nursing and that's pushback that should be overcome through dialogue and through collaboration. But I don't think this is something that you can really, that you can really say we're not going to do as an institution. Mm. Other, you know, other things that can be helpful. Um, so that's kind of the more, most of the ventilator stuff. Um, other things that can be helpful. Um, if you have people who are, have refractory hypoxemia. So these are people whom you've heavily sedated, you've prone them, you know, you may have paralyzed them, you may have put them on a paralytic. 
and they're still, you know, they're still profoundly hypoxemic. Um, you're basically maxed out on everything. You can use certain medications to help. Um, these are called inhaled pulmonary vasodilators. Um, the two main classes of these that are available in the United States are inhaled nitric oxide and inhaled epoprostenol. Um, this is sort of higher level, usually in discussion with kind of like, you know, whatever pulmonary attending or pulmonary fellows there. Um, but these do work sometimes. They work to improve oxygenation. Um, I think there's a study going on right now in Boston to looking at, looking at this exact issue in specifically in COVID patients. But it is a potential tool in the toolbox. And, you know, if you are kind of maxed out on everything you can possibly do, you know, the end of that road is ECMO. And you have to be at an ECMO-compatible center. Um, a lot of ECMO, ECMO centers have developed policies for which COVID patients are ECMO candidates. Generally, this is reserved for people who are very young and very healthy. Um, it's very center-dependent. Uh, but that would kind of be the ultimate, you know, kind of ultimate end of the road. Uh, keep in mind that, you know, um, refractory hypoxemia may be due for some, to something else. Um, you know, um, people might have had a pulmonary embolism. They might have had a pneumothorax. Might, their ET tube might be malpositioned. Um, so just don't focus on the fact that they have COVID. They have other issues associated with being critically ill as well. Nice. Things that I would not recommend doing. I would very much avoid doing bronchoscopies on any of these people. Um, and I'm a pulmonologist and I'm saying this. Um, <laughs> I think there's very little to gain from bronchoscopy. I think you're going to aerosolize a lot into the room um, and expose a whole bunch of people, including yourself. Um, and I really think that's just not, you know, you're going to interrupt the circuit. I really think it's not um, necessary unless you, abs it's absolutely imperative. Like you think that there's, you know, a plug in the ET tube and you just have to clear it out or something, you know really try to avoid doing that on a routine basis. And the other thing is the concept is the principle of CT scanning. So, you know, a lot of these people, you know, someone's in the ICU, they're really hypoxemic, you know, or they have something really wrong, they're really sick, they get a CT scan, right? The vast majority of these people have very little benefit from getting CT scans. You'll see a lot of parenchymal disease. There's nothing you can do about that. So there's very little that you're going to be able to get from a CT scan. And what you're going to do is, you know, they're going to have to go down to the CT scanner um, they're already pretty unstable. You're going to expose all these people in the hallway. You're going to expose the people in the CT scanner. Usually the scanner has to be, has to have an hour of downtime to be cleaned after that. It's, it's just a mess. So um, unless it's absolutely imperative, um, don't get CT scans on people. Hmm. Tests that are useful at the bedside are chest x-rays. Um, and the main use of chest x-rays for me is determining the position of the ET tube, honestly. Hmm. It doesn't really help me to show to look at their lungs and see that their lungs don't look good. It also is not as good of a tool as ultrasound for determination of pneumothorax, um, and this has been demonstrated in multiple studies. Um, point of care ultrasound at the bedside is much more sensitive for determining the presence of uh, pneumothorax. Arterial blood gases can be very helpful. Um, they can be very helpful objective measures. A lot of these people become very cold and very clamped down, and then your pulse ox is not as good anymore. Um, and so arterial blood gases can be very helpful, and that's one of the reasons to have an arterial line. And then the last kind of aspect of this is, you know, say, you know, this person has been intubated, they've been on a ventilator for a few days, and now you're kind of reaching the point that, well, you know, well, maybe now it's time to try to get them off the ventilator, right? So conventionally, what you probably remember is what you're taught is daily spontaneous breathing trials. So on a daily basis, you know, this is good practice. The person should be taken off sedation. You know, they should be put on spontaneous mode of breathing. It's just to see how they do, get a neurologic exam, et cetera. Uh, those principles don't apply here. Um, so 
The problem is that while in an ideal world, you should do spontaneous breathing trials on people who are good candidates for it. The practicality is that because it takes so long for the nurse to go in the room and because the nurse is stretched so thinly, um, if you take off someone's sedation, where a nurse would normally just like run into the room when the patient's reaching for the ET tube, um, they're not going to be able to do that. And so uh, what we learned early on is people will self-extubate very easily. And this is definitely not a scenario you want to have. We had a, a whole run of self-extubations. Um, oh, God. So the only scenario, fortunately, you know, they all did fine. There were no issues. We got them reintubated. Whoever needed to be intubated, there were no issues. But I mean, it's still not a great situation. And so the people who should be getting spontaneous breathing trials are people who you think are, you're going to extubate that day. Okay. Um, if you don't think they're going to be extubated that day, just don't do it. Because again, while in an ideal world, you would, um, you just, most places don't have the manpower to be able to do that safely. That's a great rundown of kind of the, I guess the natural history of a mechanical ventilator situation. <laughs> yeah, that was, I mean, I, I feel like even as an eye doctor, I understood. So that, I mean, that was a really good, That's <laughs> very impressive. Let me tell you. I mean, until this, honestly, my, my event setting refresher courses were coming from that Twitter account, Glockum Flecken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, to talk a little bit about the concepts of sedation, analgesia on people on ventilators. So again, you know, people should have a central line and they should have an arterial line. And again, the reason for that is usually not that necessarily that people are on vasopressors, although a lot of these people are on some low dose amount of vasopressor. And I'll talk about the reasons for that in a little bit. But um, oftentimes you just need the access, you know, you can't really rely on these little IVs, these peripheral IVs that, you know, may work and may not work. And they're on heavy doses of sedation, heavy doses of paralytics. Um, just, you can't afford for that stuff to not be going into the patient anymore. So that's really the main reason for a central line. So the, generally the way we've done it is intubate central line, art line immediately, just all in one within the first, you know, it doesn't take that long to put this in, um, just get it done. And then you won't have to worry about it for the rest of the time, the patients in the ICU. Okay, so in terms of what sedation and analgesia to use, my recommendation would be to use some combination of sedative and opiate pain control medication. Um, this is very center dependent. Um, there's several different guidelines out there for how to do this, but a lot of this is going to come down to resource availability. So, you know, um, where conventionally we would have started someone on maybe fentanyl and propofol, you know, fentanyl obviously is an opiate, propofol obviously is a sedative, you know, any combination probably works fine. So while I don't like using my Dazolam, it's an option that you have. Um, I think Presidex or Dexmedetomidine, um, which is a great drug, but I think it doesn't provide adequate sedation for a lot of these patients. Hmm. Your goal for sedation for these people should be, you know, essentially unarousable. Um, there should be completely synchronous with the ventilator, uh, but they should probably be, un you know, can't awake them to sternal rub. Um, they would be at what was called a, a RAS goal of minus three, uh, where number minus four would be like comatose. Um, so they're quite sedated. I would avoid using morphine um, just because, you know, the metabolites of morphine in renal dysfunction um, are potentially seizure inducing. Um, and so that may not be a great option. But again, you know, a lot of time you're going to run out of stuff. So for instance, we've had to switch to, you know, drips with hydromorphone or Dilaudid just because we've run out of fentanyl. Um, you know, so that, that's going to be an issue. And so that just, that's just going to require a little bit of, you know, creativity. You should avoid using paralytics unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, oftentimes it is, but it is not universal. You know, the paralytic of choice in most patients under most circumstances is cisatricurium. It's Nimbex. There's a number of pharmacologic reasons for why that's the drug of choice. 
And really, it should be used if you have heavily sedated someone, but they're still dyssynchronous with the ventilator. You're still having trouble oxygenating or ventilating them, uh, but you think they're adequately sedated. Um, that is the time to use paralytics. Um, you don't necessarily need to use paralytics to prone someone, although a lot of places will. But it's not, you know, it's not an absolute necessity. Keep in mind that you know paralytics, um, sedatives, all these drugs have significant long-term side effects. Um, a lot of these people who've been intubated on sedatives and paralytics for a long time develop, you know, post-ICU myopathy. They have a lot of them have a post-ICU, uh, what's called post-ICU syndrome. So these medications are not benign. You know, propofol is associated propofol infusion syndrome. So nothing is perfect in this scenario. But you have to do what has to be done in order to provide oxygenation in the moment. Because while oxygenation and mortality in, in clinical trials are not correlated, if someone is not oxygenating, they probably will not successfully make it out of the ICU. And the last thing I'll mention in regard to lines, um, we have seen, I don't know how much this has been published, but we've seen pretty high prothrombotic incidence in COVID patients. I'm not sure why this happens, um, but these people have a higher risk of arterial and venous thromboses. Um, we've seen a lot of our lines clawed off, much more than we would normally. And so what we've instituted is the use of kind of like heparin lock, even for arterial lines to prevent them from clotting off. Um, and also by that same token, you know, keep in mind that these people will develop DVTs and PEs at a higher incidence than you know, someone, even someone who's otherwise critically ill for another reason. Thanks so much on the pharmacology of how to keep these people comfortable and I guess their bodies compliant with the vent treatments that you're doing. If there's a, yeah, anything else that I remember from intern year, it's just to throw f way more fluid at a person than you think. But uh, I think that's what you're going to correct me on or at least refine my yeah, so, <laughs> so, you know, the concept of how much fluid critically ill people need um, has kind of like gone back and forth over the last decades. I think, you know, without going into this debate too much, um, I think that these patients particularly should ben would benefit from a conservative fluid strategy. Um, I don't think they need to be flooded. I think I would, you know, if you had to give a number, um, you know, you can use 30 cc's per kilo of crystalloid. Um, Crystalloid is the preferred resuscitation fluid, balanced crystalloid in particular, that's uh, lactated ringers or plasmolite if it's available. Um, if it's not, then you have to use normal saline. Um, you can buffer normal saline to some extent with bicarb. Anyway, you can be creative with these things if you understand what the composition is of resusc resuscitation fluids. Albumin is not a preferred resuscitation fluid. That's true in general in critical care. That's true in these patients as well. Um, there is no reason for these people to be on maintenance fluids. Um, they're getting a lot of fluid from just the volume of the medications they're getting. Um, maintenance fluids contribute nothing to their intravascular volume and, you know, go against the concept of a fluid restrictive strategy anyway. Maintenance fluids also are not nutrition. And so, you know, the con same concept of enteral nutrition for critically ill patients still applies to these people as well. Um, so if they need to be started on tube feeds, then they need to be started on tube feeds, not on D5W. So a lot of these people will require pressors. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that a lot of them don't require high-dose pressors. These are fairly low-dose. Um, usually, you know, norepinephrine is the presser of choice. Uh, and there's a couple of potential reasons for that. One is that you usually need a lot of sedation for these people. Uh, two is that some of them, especially the ones that get intubated, have um, go into essentially a cytokine storm, um, which is vasodilatory. Um, and... A lot of them, you know, a lot of these patients develop some degree of cardiomyopathy, and so they develop some component of cardiogenic um, shock as well. Uh, with that said, again, you know, most of these people, 
the ones that I've taken care of are really on minimal pressors, but they just kind of seem to need them during their whole time of intubation. And the moment you extubate them, they are off pressors. You know, it's not a huge deal. Um, in any other circumstance, you could even probably give it through a peripheral IV. But again, for these people, I probably would just, you know, keep a central line in there. Your goal mean arterial pressure is about 65 millimeters of mercury. Again, target and map. Um, that's pretty standard critical care guidelines. And if you see that they're going up on pressors pretty significantly, then you really need to consider why, because it's not probably not the COVID. You know, either they've developed a secondary bacterial infection, they have a UTI, they have developed some other condition, you know, they have a PE that's contributing now to an obstructive shock, something else has happened. Um, so most, if you're maxed out on three pressors, it, it isn't the COVID, it's something else is going on. So just keep that in mind. You know, a lot of my preference is to get echoes on a lot of these people. And I say that with the recognition that that requires another person to go in the room um, who may not necessarily need to be there, uh, like an echo tech um, or a cardiology fellow or cardiology attending. Um, but I will say that I've seen, you know, I personally have seen a fair amount of left, both left heart and right heart failure from these in these people. Um, and sometimes echo can be very helpful in determining kind of how much volume someone needs, whether they need to be started on pulmonary vasodilators, which can reduce your RV afterload, um, whether or not they could have had a PE, you know, that contributes to right heart, acute right heart failure, things like that. So I think it is worthwhile. Um, I recognize that that may not be feasible everywhere, and um, that's not something I'm firmly committed to, but I think, especially if you have a troponin elevation, I think it helps. Um, I'll talk for a second about what to do if someone is kind of like crashing, uh, like rapidly decompensating patient, okay? So this is, these are kind of like, you know, bullet points to remember, um, which obviously should be brief because otherwise you're not, people aren't going to remember them. Okay, so if someone is crashing, okay, as in they're an extremist, um, if they're not intubated, if they're not intubated, they need to be intubated. There's no discussion about that. That's a fact. Um, there's basically no circumstance in which case that isn't true. Some of these patients will be crashing and there'll be an RV failure and those intubations are higher risk. Um, the, the intubation should be performed by the most experienced person um, with the most available, you know, most easy to use equipment available at bedside. If the patient's already intubated um, and they become rapidly hypoxemic, okay, so one minute they're satting like 95%, the next minute they're satting 80. Okay, there's not that many things that cause that. Check an ultrasound, point of care ultrasound for pneumothorax. Um, you look for lung sliding. The learning curve for learning how to see a uh, lung sliding is extremely, extremely high. You can go on YouTube, figure out what lung sliding looks like, and see if your patient has it. It's very easy. Um, it's much more sensitive test than chest x-ray. It's also much faster um, in most cases. Chest x-ray is helpful in case, you know, the patient was, you know, turned one way or another, and their ET tube migrated. That can happen sometimes as well. Check the ventilator pressures um, and determine if there's some kind of circuit issue. So ET tube to, you know, tubing to the ventilator, some kind of circuit issue um, that's going to cause high P pressures. And consider the possibility of pulmonary embolism, again, in these patients. You know, normally the test that we would do to look for that would be a CT, you know, a CT angiogram to look for a pulmonary embolism. Um, Sometimes that's feasible and sometimes that's appropriate and sometimes it's not, you know. Um, oftentimes these people are too sick to be even stably moved down for, to a CT scanner. So sometimes it's appropriate to just empirically start them on anticoagulation, uh, usually with a heparin drip. You can get duplex ultrasounds of their legs and you can get a portable VQ scan. 
you know, I think it's been perpetuated that, you know, portable VQs are not as good in people who have parenchymal lung disease. I think there's a fair amount of data that supports that that's not true. Um, I think portable VQs are actually pretty decent. And I think if you need to do a bedside test to look for a PE and you need to confirm it, then that's probably the one to do. So those are the main ones. So ultrasound, chest x-ray, and airway pressures. Okay. Those, between those things, you will get the vast majority of the answers that you need um, to what's going on with the patient. Um, I've seen all of these. Uh, I've seen ET tubes that have become, you know, mainstemmed in one of the mainstem bronchi. I've seen pneumothoraces. I've seen uh, king king of the ET tube. It's it's PEs. It's all it's happened. All these things can happen. If someone has having a cardiac arrest, okay, so this is something, so the patient's requiring ACLS, right? CPR, defibrillation, et cetera. I don't think we're at the point that it's appropriate to go in the room without putting on PPE. I recognize that that delays potentially CPR, um, and I recognize the potential consequences that that may have on the patient, but I think it's not appropriate, especially in this day and age of shortage of you know healthcare workers, to send people in to do CPR without appropriate PPE. I just don't think that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. CPR, as you can imagine, is a highly aerosolizing procedure. Um, especially if you disconnect the circuit. By that, and also while I'm on that note, it's probably not necessary for most of these people to disconnect them from the ventilator. Hmm. You could probably just leave them attached and just turn off the ventilator, you know, the ventilator alarms. And I will say that a lot of the CPR, you know, patients who have a cardiac arrest, um, those patients just don't do well. And it should be a discussion with especially high-risk patients before they get intubated um, with them, with their families, about their goals of care. I really can't emphasize that enough. That's not a discussion you want to have while doing CPR. That's really a discussion you want to have when people still have a little bit of time to kind of have their wrap their minds around the concept of not initiating DNR or not initiating uh, CPR. I say that in regard to kind of like the elderly, you know, or the people with multiple comorbidities who are unlikely to survive a cardiac arrest with meaningful neurologic recovery, right? That's not, I'm not talking about the 20 year old that gets intubated. I'm talking about the, you know, 95-year-old with metastatic pancreatic cancer, yeah, maybe we should not be doing CPR on these on someone like that, which yeah. is probably true in general, but um, certainly in this instance. So have realistic discussions with patients and their families about the direction in which this can go, recognize that they could do very poorly and discuss that with them ahead of time to try to prevent people from um, getting care that they may not want or care that's not appropriate to begin with. Heavy stuff. Thanks. Any questions on any of that stuff yeah just with in terms of i mean i, I hear you're saying about establishing pp before entering any acls situation mm-hmm. but is that just for covid suspect or covid positive patients that you guys are doing that or is that like anyone who has cardiac arrest in the hospital uh i would I mean? say no that's probably for for rule out and confirmed patients got it yeah. um okay that makes sense so yeah i mean i would say that like Someone who, you know, has a cardiac arrest in the hospital who COVID is not a concern, you should be doing what you would normally do for someone like that. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, next section, it's really interesting stuff, um, what you're, what you've laid out for the different medications and everything. And given, I guess, in the layperson national conversation, quite illuminating. And I think Ben and I fall into that layperson conversation these days. At this point, since you wrote this, have things really, it seems like efficacy assessments of these different drugs for COVID-19 are changing all the time? Yeah, so I think a lot of, um, I'll talk about the drugs individually in a second, but I think as a general statement, um, I think a lot of the use for this drug for these drugs are based on fairly small experiences. They're not based on randomized controlled large clinical trials. 
And I think, you know, there is no magic bullet that we know of right now that's going to fix all of this, right? So in terms of what is available, um, a lot of the availability is dependent on the hospital in which you work, the hospital system in which you work, etc. So what I will talk about is what we do, um, is what we've done at Cedars-Sinai um, that may not apply to the hospital in which you're working, um, or may. But what we've done is... Um, so there's essentially, you know, four or five different medications that have been used. Okay, so I'll talk about each of them for, you know, kind of one at a time. So the first is hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil. There is some data that this prevents exacerbation of pulmonary symptoms. It's not a totally benign medication, um, and the main issue with it is QTC prolongation. A lot of time hydroxychloroquine is given in combination with azithromycin, which is also QTC prolonging. So in these people, you have to watch their QT very closely. Hydroxychloroquine also has some bone marrow suppression, has some degree of hypoglycemia, hasn't been that much of an issue here. But essentially, most people admitted to the hospital who require supplemental oxygen for us tend to get put on hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin if they can tolerate it. There is an, an antiretroviral combination of lopinavir and ritonavir. Um, the brand name, I think, is Kalitra. There's really no good data to support its use, honestly. It's usually used as a second-line agent if hydroxychloroquine is contraindicated. So um, one of those instances would be, say, you have a QTE of like 550 um, and giving, you know, even before you start hydroxychloroquine. So uh, most side effects regarded in regard to lopinavir, ritonavir are related to GI intolerance. There's some drug-drug interaction, but usually it's pretty well tolerated by most people. The, there's a concept of blocking cytokine storm um, that's called an IL-6 blockade. Um, these are monoclonal antibodies, the most common of which is tocilizumab. There's pretty good data um, for outcomes in patients who have cytokine storm. So cytokine storm in COVID patients has been defined as an IL-6 level of greater than 10, a CRP of greater than 35 milligrams per liter, ferritin of greater than 500 nanograms per milliliter, and a D-dimer of greater than one microgram per liter. There are some correlates to that are an LDH greater than 200, um, a, a neutrophil lymphocyte ratio of greater than 4. So if you have, if you collect these lab values on admission or you kind of collect them over the course, like every few days during the hospitalization, you see that they're going up, then these patients may be patients who are going into cytokine storm and could potentially benefit from tocilizumab. These are not drugs that should be used in pregnancy. They should really only be used in severe respiratory failure. So these are people who are you know, either intubated or about to be intubated. There's probably, probably no role for them on the floor because of, you know, limitation in availability, cost, etc. Um, mm. The side effects are predominantly related to some LFT abnormalities, um, some degree of myelosuppression, and, you know, they can unmask the presence of latent TB. So if you give it to the, these people, they probably should have a quantifier unchecked. And then the last kind of large class is uh, remdesivir, and that's currently in clinical trials. Uh, we're one of the sites for that clinical trial. In most places, currently it's only available as a clinical trial, um, whereas a lot of these other medications can be given off-label or on compassionate use basis. So in general, how we do it is if someone is admitted to the floor, they're COVID positive, they get hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin. If they're in the ICU and they're COVID positive, they get hydroxychloroquine plus IL-6 blockade. Um, and remdesivir, remdesivir if it's available. There is pretty compelling evidence against the use of steroids in these patients, um, unless there's another indication. And another indication would be refractory shock, um, where you're giving hydrocortisone for that. If you have, think someone isn't having an asthma exacerbation, you're giving steroids for that or a COPD exacerbation. Um, but if you just have just regular COVID, no other indication for steroids, then steroids are not indicated. That's the current data. The There's... 
some data that NSAIDs can cause uh, clinical deterioration. So for fever control, Tylenol is probably a better drug. Again, some of these patients will have LFT abnormalities, so just make sure that they're not in fluid liver failure before giving them Tylenol. While I'm talking about the QTC issue, um, keep in mind that almost all telemetry monitors have QTC monitors. And so it's not really necessary to get daily EKGs and have the EKG tag go in the room every day unnecessarily exposing themselves. Um, get one EKG, make sure the EKG correlates to the QT on the monitor, uh, figure out what that correlation is, and you can kind of gauge. And if you see that, you know, relatively speaking, the QT today is greater than it was yesterday, you know, even if the absolute numbers, you know, you don't really believe, that their QT probably is widening, you know. And again, with all that said, you know, watch people's electrolytes. This is like basic hospital medicine. Um, people's electrolytes need to be appropriately corrected. And the last thing about medications is, you know, um, conventional critical care, you know, kind of holds true the fact that if someone is so sick that they need to be in the ICU intubated, they should be on all the antibiotics on the planet. In these patients, that's probably not the case. Um, and our practice has not been to put these people on broad-spectrum antibiotic coverage. So not everybody who comes in into the unit needs to be on vancomycin if you think that the issue is a COVID respiratory failure. There's, you can imagine the reasons behind that. Uh, one is medication utilization, you know, side effects of antibiotics, drug resistance that will be inevitably resulting from large, such large-scale use, et cetera. Again, if you think if, if someone is in refractory shock and they're on three pressors, then it's probably not the COVID, and those people probably should be on antibiotics. But everybody else, you know, the vast majority of these people probably don't need anything more than azithromycin in combination with you know one of these um, anti-COVID medications. Yeah, I, I I think infectious disease docs have a lot more to do than antibiotic stewardship these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and again, you know, a lot of these medications, a lot of these medication protocols um, are driven by pharmacy, hospital pharmacies, and by infectious disease committees at hospitals. Um, and so, you know, what I'm saying, what I'm describing, is kind of how we've been doing it. But I can tell you that this has evolved, even in our center, and this is going to continue to evolve across all other centers. So none of this is gospel. The date is April 16th. <laughs> we will make note of that. Yeah. <laughs> we should probably open with that. But without, <laughs> fast things are changing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's absolutely true. Things are changing very rapidly. A lot of the things that I'm talking about are kind of, you know, what we've been doing so far. These things change. These things change depending on what resources you have available. You know, if we admit 100 COVID patients tonight, which, you know, hopefully won't happen. But I imagine that a lot of our protocols are going to change tomorrow, you know. So, mm. So far, we've been fortunate, but, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Well, with people like yourself in the units and on the floors, I think we're all the more fortunate for it, Yuri. Oh, you're very kind. But, um, <laughs> you know, actually, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about, um, it is terrifying, honestly. Um, so if I were to flip the roles um, and say, you know, some public health disaster came where everybody became blind, like, you know, I don't know if you've read Saramago's Blindness. So say you had a public health disaster like that where they required everybody who previously has been an internist or a pulmonary critical care doctor to suddenly become an ophthalmologist. The prospect of that is really terrifying to me, actually. I don't think I'd be able to do something like that. And so please recognize the fact that if you are pulled out of your comfort zone into an area um, that you're with which you're unfamiliar or that you haven't practiced in a long time, that isn't a failure on your part. And you shouldn't regard yourself um, to the same standard that you would in your normal practice, okay? So it doesn't matter. If you're an attending ophthalmologist with decades of experience, you should not be thinking to yourself that you should be functioning at the level of a, func you know, an attending intensivist with decades of experience. 
And we all recognize that. And I think, you know, you should too, because I think that is going to lead to a lot of burnout. It's going to lead to a lot of dissatisfaction, a lot of frustration. And um, just keep in mind that we're all doing the best we can. We know that you guys are doing the best you can. And we really appreciate, you know, everyone's hands, you know, all hands on deck here. Um, same principles apply to nurses, same principles apply to respiratory therapists. You know, a lot of the nurses in our ICU right now are telemetry nurses who've never been in an ICU before. And, you know, it's a frightening prospect to them as well. Um, and so please recognize that just be nice to everybody, you know, make sure that the communication is very effective, uh, make sure people actually understand what you're telling them and make sure that you're understanding what they're telling you. Uh, because the worst case scenario is where you have people who kind of understand a little bit of everything, but they don't really understand the details of what the other person is saying, but they also haven't had enough experience to recognize the potential complications of that. So, <laughs> um, you know, again, just talk to people the more the more you can. The, keep the, all the lines of communication open because that's going to be make a huge difference for you guys. It's going to make, it makes a huge difference for us, certainly. That's very kind of you to say and um, acknowledge those things. We certainly would not hold it against anybody if suddenly there was a pandemic of blindness and the tables were turned, but we will try and hope that we can be as helpful as we can and much appreciate your coming on and guiding us through these things so that we can make a little bit more of a difference that way if called upon for that. No, yeah, and I appreciate you know, I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me here. Um, I think it's really helpful to have um, you know, even if hopefully you guys never are never in a situation where you need to use this, but you know, a lot of people's families have questions and sometimes it's good to have some kind of at least rudimentary understanding of what happens to really sick COVID patients. Yeah, that was awesome. I, I mean, I feel almost like a better doctor now that I've listened to all this <laughs> stuff. So <laughs> that was absolutely awesome. Thanks for spending all that time reviewing all that with us. Yeah, and recognize that, you know, you guys, you know, honestly, anybody helping with this is making a huge difference. Um, whether you feel like you're you are or not, um, you are. <laughs> and so um, I think that's true of everybody, including, you know, including house staff from other departments, including nurses from other departments, including housekeeping, parking attendants, all these people who are continuing to come to work, keeping our hospitals clean, keeping everything functional, you know, it makes a huge deal and it makes a, it's a huge deal and it makes a huge difference for everybody. Ben, I don't know if, uh, we can do our usual sign off after that because there's no way you're going to summarize all that in no, one five um, minutes. Yeah, that's, thing. That, that's, I think he did the summary. But, uh, he, he did like a crash course on crashing patients in a very little time. So <laughs> We will say again, thank you very much once more to our special guest, Yuri Matasov um, from Cedars sinai and hope that everything goes as well as it can in the next couple of months for you and everybody out there and hope everybody can stay as safe and healthy as possible. With that, um, I guess we'll go with yeah. that for now. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Yuri. All right. Well, okay. Thanks, thanks everyone. so much again, Yuri. All right. Thank Appreciate you guys. Appreciate it a yeah. lot. Yeah. Pleasure.